Hello, and welcome back to Eco Insights. I'm your host, Chloe Young. And I'm Georgia Scott. And today we're here with Chase Iron Eyes, who's a attorney with Lakota People's Law Project and the co-founder of Last Real Indians. So thank you so much for being here with us today. Can you tell us a bit about yourself and just the work that you've done? Yes, and thank you so much for having me on your cast. Uh, my name is Chase Iron Eyes. I was born in the Black Hills of what is now called South Dakota in the what is now called the United States. Uh, my people, our nation has thrived here and survived here uh, for untold millennia. Our grandfathers and our elders consider us to be under the illegal occupation of a colonial settler state known as the United States, which was basically all of you know Britain and Europe's uh, dregs that came over here at some point or another. And I work with the Lakota People's Law Project as a staff attorney or lead counsel now. I've been with the Lakota Law Project for nine years. I'm also the co-director of that project. Uh, I helped found a, a website called Last Real Indians, very cheeky name, uh, because every aspect of that name, Last Real and Indian, is uh, controversial. But it was designed that way. Uh, and I also host a weekly webcast uh, that we just converted to a podcast called Cut to the Chase, Cut to the Chase Iron Eyes or Cut to the Chase with Chase Iron Eyes. I grew up on the Standing Rock Nation, the Standing Rock Reservation, which was the site of the 2016 and 2017 conflict between environmentalists, uh, people that care about clean drinking water and healthy ecosystems and understand that the human species has caused a climate collapse and an, an extinction level climate collapse that politicians and, and others seem to be just kind of brushed. They, they want to just brush it to the side. But at Standing Rock, as you may have seen, I don't know how old you guys were at that time, but you may have seen um, what happened there. Uh, maybe 850 people were arrested. It was uh, always prayerful, always uh, civil resistance. You know, there's a fine line that we're having to define. Um, those of us who were born, I believe that I'm a generation Xer. Uh, whatever came after the boomers, that, that, that is what I am. I was born in 1978. And we uh, also inherited, you know, this economic reality that has caused us to, to enter into these spaces that, you know, I did not plan to be considered an activist or uh, a revolutionary or somebody who is willing to sacrifice for the liberation of Mother Earth. That is kind of how we see it. But uh, in Standing Rock, some, you know, they're called Energy Transfer Partners. Um, they caused a lot of heartache, a lot of hardships, a lot of uh, violence and violations of international law. You know, we have treaties with the United States. I'm sure you've just seen that LaDonna Brave Bull Ellard has recently passed away, and she was the founder of the Sacred Stone Camp, which started the Ocheti Shakoi resistance. Um, and Ocheti Shakoi is a, it's a traditional name. It's in our language, the Lakota or Dakota language for our confederacy um, or the Sioux Nation. It is, we're also known as Sioux Nation around the world. Um, so, so I was raised there you know, until I was 19 years old. And then I went off to school, left the reservation um, and became eventually became a lawyer in the year 2007. Um, I ran for the United States Congress as, uh, you know, North Dakota is a small state. So I'm sure one district in Chicago has a congressional rep, but in North Dakota, there's only one for the entire whole state. And this is a state where 70% of the people that I was trying to win the vote of, 70% had voted for uh, the party that I was running against. And I was running as a blue 
party, uh, the Democratic Party, uh, and and uh, my opponent was a red guy with uh, the Republican Party. And so, um, you know, it, in the United States, it's a very kind of doesn't make a lot of sense why we, we only think in terms of red or blue. But that was it. That was a, a crazy experience running for the United States Congress. Uh, and since then, I've moved to the Pine Ridge Reservation where my wife leads the the only hospital, um, the main hospital for the entire Pine Ridge Reservation. And we, 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 we're constantly working to kind of uplift our status and claw our way out of um, a, a very complex system of legal and political and economic oppression that, you know, the, the larger, the mainstream world in, in mainstream America just doesn't really understand that not a lot of people have the opportunity to make a connection with indigenous peoples in this country. And so, and, and whatever you guys learned in school, whatever this is, probably the same thing I learned in school, we're, we're more concerned about the capitals of the United States the presidents, who is all the presidents. I mean, we're learning the same stuff and none of it is designed to like teach us who we really are as Americans or, you know, we just, we try to erase the indigenous perspective. And uh, I mean, I under, that's totally understandable from a settler colonial mind state. You know, I would probably be doing the same thing if, if uh, I wanted to take over this whole country and not have any kind of remnants of, of the real true civilizers or owners or the, the people that are my landlords. You know what I mean? I, the last thing I want to do is empower them. And so that's why I think we, we we're experiencing sort of uh, this, this, this truth telling moment in our history, in our 240 years as a country in, in the United States and in Canada, New Zealand, Australia, the same thing. In the United States, you know, with Black Lives Matter, with different different things that are happening, we're finally being able to tell each other the truth about who we are and what the sources of our our identities are, the sources of our sovereignties. We're we're, we're telling that truth with each other now, so we're kind of entering into a new social contract, uh, so to speak. But anyway, that that's a long way of of telling you, you know, just just what I'm involved in right now. Right now, I come into the Black Hills of South Dakota, which is which is a spiritual epicenter of, of not only the Lakota people, but of the, the Northern Cheyenne, uh, the Crow Nation, um, the, the Kiowa, uh, the Arapaho, um, probably the Pawnee. There's, there's about 15 different tribal nations or indigenous peoples, indigenous nations that, uh, that consider the Black Hills to be uh, supremely sacred. And so, you know, it's the center of our ceremonial existence. Our, our spiritual protocols are all tied to this very place on Mother Earth. And uh, they also descend from and were um, gifted to us and, and put upon us by the Buffalo people, you know, the, 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 those species which predated the two-legged people or two-legged nations, I guess, which is us. And so um, I come up here, I just, we, we built a studio up here. I'm just now getting into the casting world. And so it's really, it's exciting to see you, uh, both of you, Chloe and Georgia, uh, doing this because you, you know, you represent what, what in our culture is the seventh generation. And, and, and that is a concept that, you know, there's many ways to interpret it, but one way is that we um, think ahead, you know, through providence and through planning, we try to ensure that we're able to provide and think seven generations out in our planning, our economies and our politics, our geopolitics and, and how, we, how we walk with Mother Earth. And as you know, you know, Western civilization hasn't really thought like that. Uh, since it, we're, we're studying the thoughts and ideologies of a bunch of old dead white guys from Europe from a long, long time ago. And that is kind of given us a shelf life. Um, and, and, and so we're very encouraged as indigenous peoples to, to be able to tell our stories and kind of impart our worldviews to 
you know, the challenges that, that face us as human beings today. Certainly, that was a very interesting and very important uh, backstory. And I think you touched on some really important things there. And especially how kind of indigenous practices and indigenous societies are a lot more intertwined with sustainable practices than, you know, more Western and kind of more capitalist oriented civilizations, which is so crucial. And, you know, that's what's so unfortunate about the irony that kind of the destruction caused by Western civilizations is having a disproportionate impact on indigenous societies. And that leads us into our next question. So you touched on this before, but could you go into a bit more depth on how do indigenous rights and environmentalism intersect? Yes, they indigenous rights and environmentalism go hand in hand. When we think about, when we talk about, when we study the jurisprudence of the, the colonial extractive economies, and, and you can think of that as Western civilization, but the Chinese are doing the same thing. The, the Russians are doing the same thing. And so, um, you know, they, they, if there ever was some sort of legitimate distinction between capitalism and communism and, and other sorts of isms that, that that line seems to be blurred in in multinational conglomerates and corporations and the billionaire class seem to be able to call the shots no matter where it is but one of the ways that indigenous um, nationhood or or the indigenous worldview and environmentalism come together is in protecting mother earth protecting those entities those universal elements is what they are in our worldview you know water is not just some limitless resource we, we don't call it resources in our worldview uh, that's where you might have heard the word mini wichoni and, and just for a, a quick example, in our worldview, we have a word called wamakashka. And wamakashka means the beings that move about the earth in a sacred manner. And it refers to four-legged beings. It refers to those that crawl, those that fly, um, and, and those that walk on two legs about the earth. Like we're included within that category of of um spiritual entities that move about the earth whereas in the english language it's animals it's natural resources and so there's there's a schism there's a there's a dissonance there's a a, a, a split in the very way that the english language allows us to know ourselves and allows us to center ourselves so environmentalists are simply in my view human beings which recognize their ancestral indigeneity we all descend from peoples and nations that respected mother earth that knew the seasonal occurrences knew how to pay attention to when the sun is rising or how the stars and the constellations shift over time, or how the plant nation and the animal nations, you know, the Wamakashka and other beings interacted and were interrelated with, with us as a human species. We all came from those traditions. It's the, the colonization that has resulted in kind of this extractive financial modernity you know you could even throw a war machine in there because there's no we, we always seem to be at war but what, what when we when we as when we call ourselves modern human beings we put ourselves at the apex of that evolution and where in in, in, in environmentalists those are the people that stood with us at standing rock you know by the thousands Thousands of people came out there. So in, 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 in indigeneity is a living, evolving ethos um, in what is now called the Americas, in Turtle Island, and all over the world. But I'm only speaking and knowing my experience here as a Lakota person. Um, 
you know, in, in indigenous jurisprudence, indigenous worldviews, and indigenous institutions um, provide a spiritual foundation for those who know that these systems are off balance and know that we have got to get it together and we've got to create different systems of living with Mother Earth, living on this planet and, and, and not let the big financial extractive conglomerates dictate our energy policy or our foreign policy. Um, a lot of people are waking up and it's the, young, the younger people who most viscerally sense that energy because according to our traditions, we are living in a time of prophecy which means that things are changing on the planet. You know, on a planetary scale, we're dealing with climate collapse. And so that naturally forces a human being to confront the magnitude, the heavy, heavy magnitude of what it means to be alive, what it would mean to meet what is called in the Western world our death, because if we as a human species are, are behaving like a parasite or like a virus and are actually killing the entire ecosystem in a matter of since the industrial revolution, you know, couple that with Wall Street and Hong Kong and, and Tokyo and London and all the financial centers of the world, um, you can see how we have given ourselves a shelf life. We have given ourselves an extinction date. And that is, that is completely misguided. And it presents itself as a challenge to those of us who are aware of what's going on. And that is where indigenous peoples, indigenous nations, are still providing that spiritual foundation and guidance to those who obviously, you know, who, who objectively recognize what is going on and are looking for ways to further explore that because it speaks to what we are as spiritual beings. We are connected to everything that is. So it's, it's kind of an unavoidable conundrum and dilemma and also just a comfortable natural reality that, that we are living in right now. So we will continue to see those, uh, different those demographics coalesce you know where indigeneity meets environmentalism it's it's always going to go together yeah definitely i think you made some really good points there and i i like how you refer to kind of what um what a lot of humans are doing as like a shelf life i've never heard that but I, that's a good one and i also think you touched on a really good point about being in balance with nature as well and thinking about how the english language kind of refers to that it's it's really important to consider because currently you know, in, in Chicago, we're not in balance with nature here at all. I know most of the world, you're not in balance with nature. And I think that is really the root of the problem. As you said, you know, we call them resources. It's we take and we take and we take, but we don't give. And that that is a, that's the problem. Um, so also in the U.S., Native American reservations, they represent only 2% of the land from what I'm aware of. But they hold approximately 20% of the country's fossil fuel reserves. And then together, these fuels are worth some 1.5 trillion. And this is according to the Council of Energy Resource Tribes. So can you expand a bit on the issue of the privatization of public lands, particularly in the United States, and how this impacts both the people and the planet? Yes. In, in, uh, I, I am an attorney, uh, and so... When we studied, for instance, property law, the professors didn't say to us that this is an imbalance of the human species to hold property and capital sacred as something sacred. But in capitalism, those are two sacred items of, of, of our existence. And so the privatization of indigenous lands is a major problem. As you can see, indigenous peoples hold 
ownership interest or recognized interest in just 2% of the United States. This means there have been billions of acres of land that have been expropriated from indigenous nations. At least 20% of those developable, developable um, energy reserves and probably other mineral resources. You know, I just got off the phone with, with a brother and a sister from a lithium mine out in, it's called Thacker Pass, out in, uh, right by Fort McDermott Reservation and Duck Valley Reservation in Northern Nevada. So oil, gas, um, minerals, fossil fuels and minerals. Um, we at least represent 20% of those resources in what is now known as the United States. And a lot of those are controlled by federal agencies like the BLM, the Bureau of Land Management, like the National Park Service, like uh, you know, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, uh, the Department of the Interior, which you know, there is now an indigenous person, Deb Holland, who is the Secretary of the Interior. And that's the first time we could not, as indigenous peoples, we could not imagine that there would be an indigenous woman to lead the very agency designed to absorb and erase indigenous sovereignty. So that is a very uh, a complex concept there to, to think about. But I know President Trump, when he was in office from 2017 to 2021, um, he, hold on. Sorry, let me turn this down there. I didn't know I didn't turn my phone on to. Oh, good. Yeah. Um, when President Trump was the president, he actually made a move to privatize certain reservations. And that began with the process of disestablishing um, the Mashpee Wampanoag. And, and part of this is it comes from just Trump's personal vendettas against Eastern Board Atlantic Ocean uh, proximate indigenous nations like the Mashpee Wampanoag. And I, and I know some of the tribal leaders from some of those Eastern tribal nations, and they recall when Trump was trying to develop casinos in their areas and trying to exclude Native nations. And we have sovereign rights to engage in economic development and trade. And so we've had to constantly defend against the privatization of our lands. You know, we're losing that battle, but we're also in a, in a, in a, in a, in a very uh, blessed and strange situa situation where everybody in this country, you know, this country was founded on gen the genocide of my people and on the slavery of African indigenous people. But all of the descendants, whether you're, you know, and, and whiteness was invented as a concept right after currency and chattel slavery. And it was a way to kind of divide us and get us concentrating on those very real differences, get us fighting each other and um, keeping us divided. And, and now since in 240 years, racial and class subjugation has defined our dynamic, but add to that property ownership and economic stratification, meaning the, the, those who, are, who were wealthy during chattel slavery and during the creation of currency, those who come from those families that lend to both sides of any war over the last 500 years, those, the people in those classes, and that is the billionaire, the, the rich ruling class is founded on racial and class subjugation. So privatization, as we're seeing, is going to lead us further into this stratified struggle dynamic or dialectic where there's always these 
two sides competing for control of resources and really control of our lives. Think about going to college. In order to go to college, if you didn't come from an extreme amount of wealth and you weren't born into that, well, then you got to take out loans like I did. You know, I, I still owe like $130,000 in student loans. And I, that's why Biden needs to, to, to relieve student loan debt because I ain't paying that. They're going to have to come find me on the Pine Ridge Reservation if they want to get 130 grand from me. That's about the, the least that the, the country could do. <laughs> but they could, they could provide student loan debt relief for all, all of working families in America. We all need that. And so the privatization of indigenous country is impacting us to this very day. Right now, we can't do a thing to reclaim the sacred sites. We have to rely on Deb Holland or somebody to return those sites to us in, in another prophecy known as the land back prophecy, where if we put land back in indigenous hands, the world could begin to heal. This was prophesied by, by one of our leaders. His name is Chief Frank Fool's Crow. And he was a contemporary of one of my teachers. And so I really take those words and, and this reality that our people have described and have talked about for, for a long time. We need land back in our hands and we're not able to acquire those lands. We did during this time known as the Peshla uh, land back. Um, acquisition where we were able to buy back one of our sacred sites in the middle of the Black Hills. But at the same time, Bill Gates is acquiring millions of acres of farmland because of the way that land use and land title is divvied up in this country. And so I, we tribal nations, indigenous peoples, need to be participating with other nonprofits, other non-governmental organizations, and even wealthy individuals. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know why the Elon Musks and the Bill Gates and the Jeff Bezos of the world are not acquiring land and converting that land to uses that benefit humanity. It seems like we're just kind of lost and buying into the same you know, archetypes and the same uh, economic modalities that, that we were born into. And we're not creating the change that we need to see. But I'll, I'll just say that privatization for, for Native people started with the Dawes Allotment Act. We did not, I mean, we obviously knew what private property was. I mean, if you ask anybody who, you know, collected clams or lived by the ocean, everybody knew exactly where each family could fish or where they could gather. It's not like we didn't have private property, but there's 500 different tribal nations here, so they all have different systems, different institutions. But private property has not, we have not done well with that. And, and, and even with agriculture, for instance, you, you can't compete as a, as a family farm own, owning you know, private property, 160 acres or 40 acres in a meal or whatever it was. That for us is 160 acres in, in the Dawes Allotment Act. That, that's with homesteading. That's what happened to Indian people, Native American people. Um, there has been a further stratification. So private property is definitely something that we're going to have to renegotiate in the, in the social contract renegotiations that, that are taking place right now. Certainly. And I think that's a really interesting conversation to be had. Like who has the right to have the land where, you know, even if anyone has the right to the land and what defines that, whether it be wealth or power. And, you know, the way we begin to divide up the land is only further dividing us as people. And that brings us on to something which you touched on before, which you were heavily involved in. So could you expand on um, your um, kind of involvement within the protests of the Dakota Access Pipeline, commonly referred as, to as the Standing Rock protests that occurred to resist the Dakota Access Pipeline? And if at, if at all, how did this shape your activism and where is it now in regards to the Dakota Access Pipeline? That, the, that fight has not ended. There are still active lawsuits that the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe, which is a, a tribal government, 
located in, in what is now North and South Dakota. Uh, there's a lawsuit that the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe is the lead plaintiff. There's also the Shine River Sioux Tribe that is another plaintiff, the uh, Oglala Sioux Tribe and the Yankton Sioux Tribe. And also my wife is the lead plaintiff of a case. Her name's Dr. Sarah Jumping Eagle. So there's a case out there called Sarah Jumping Eagle versus Trump. Um, and the other suits are against the Army Corps of Engineers. So that fight is very much still going on. Lakota People's Law Project is, is you know, working very hard to petition President Biden and the Army Corps of Engineers to do what is right because the permit that Kelsey Warren, you know, the billionaire who owns Energy Transfer Partners, which owns the pipeline that is trespassing at this current time against our internationally protected interest as the Sioux Nation, even though the United States courts don't want to recognize what we know, I mean, since we're now effectively able to go through those institutions like institutions of law and academia and so forth and pop out the other side of those things and deconstruct them for what they were designed to be, the programming that they're designed to implement. Um, they don't want to recognize, you know, what, what the, our legal arguments and our stances, because what we know is the truth and is correct that, you know, the United States had no right to assert dominion over us just because we weren't Christian European nations, which is what they are still purporting to do in the courts of this land based on the doctrine of discovery. Now, that the, the, the Dakota Access Pipeline fight, Stand with Standing Rock, that is a fight that we did not ask for. Like, my children did not ask for Kelsey Warren and his cronies, including Donald Trump and Rick Perry, the former governor of the state of Texas. We did not ask for our peace to be disturbed. These criminals brought this pipeline into our backyard and basically held a gun to our head through the state of North Dakota law enforcement structures at Morton County, through the North Dakota National Guard, and through a private mercenary firm or military contractor firm known as Tiger Swan, which trailed, surveilled, and kept eyes on me and my daughter, who my daughter was 13 and 14 at the time, 12, 13, and 14. And I'm sure to this day, there are apparatus that keep eyes on those personalities which have the ability to unite people across all of these demographics and classifications which were instilled in us, invented and then instilled in us, like race, like religion, and so forth. We're all beginning to graduate from that degenerate programming and see each other as human beings, as common entities, part and parcel of one species. And that is, that is a great thing. So Standing Rock changed me in the sense that I was running for the United States Congress. I was trying to voice my perspectives as an indigenous person, fully cognizant of the American constitutional and natural rights and birthrights that adhered to me as a sovereign being. But I was raised by Lakota people, by my mother, who, who let me know exactly what I am and who I am. And so I started telling our stories and laying those foundations, spiritual, legal foundations, about why we had a prior right to contest big extraction's ability to violate our rights, to inflict corporate-sponsored state-executed violence on us, and completely tread all over our rights and dictate to us what our future would be. So we stood up. I lost the, the race for the United States Congress November 8th, the same day that President Trump won 
you know, the right to be the 45th president of the United States. And I remember some of, you know, if you, there's a, there's a very good kind of a quick descriptor on vice uh, that I, I did a short documentary documentary with vice that kind of details the september 3rd dog attacks I'm, i just wanted to highlight some of the 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 occurrences during the dakota access pipeline fight the stand was standing around because young people and and those who may be listening need to know what happened there there were brutalities inflicted on indigenous peoples on american citizens and nobody has been made whole for those brutalities Sophia Wolanski lost one of her arms because of an explosive device that that law enforcement or the National Guard or the private mercenaries threw at her. Two people lost their eyesight in one of their eyes because their eyes were shot out by some form of close-range munitions. And people were bitten by, by deadly attack dogs. So this happened on September 3rd more violence and the biggest arrest of, of, of all of Standing Rock happened October 27th, 2016 at what was called Treaty Camp Raid or North Raid Day. And then Backwater Bridge is where people lost their eyesight and, and, and their arm was, you know, it's just, it's, it's just brutal and grotesque. And I, my prayers go out to everybody recovering from those times. And so that going through those, I was at each of those occurrences, except on the 27th, I wasn't at the where people were getting arrested. I was going to my office as a United States congressional candidate. And I had to go through a military checkpoint personnel by the National Guard to get to my campaign office, to get out of my reservation. And reservations are places where the our word for reservation is Okashke, place of confinement. So back in the day we used to have to ask the superintendent to leave the reservation well that 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 day came again in a sense the indian wars have never ended so the no dapple struggle is still ongoing we are still in court we are still ready to pressure president biden to take that pipeline out of our homelands until free prior and informed consent can be obtained, which means recognizing our rights to these lands, our rights to say what can and can't come through here. And if it's got, to, if it's going to come through here, then we have a say in what kind of recompense we obtain, what kind of readiness protocols are there in case it spills. All of that stuff is still very much up for grabs and in play. And same thing, remember, I, I, I mentioned this Thacker Pass uh, lithium mine. Um, you know, tribal nations simply need to be brought to the table so that there can be free, prior, and informed consent. Our country, America, is just so used to thinking that tribal nations don't exist or, or they, they, they got left in the 1800s. And, you know, that, this is why you see things like the Washington Redskins, the Cleveland Indians, the Kansas City Chiefs, the Atlanta Braves, the, the whole process of Indian mascotting is part of how the American cultural mythology, the settler colonial cultural mythology was designed to erase indigeneity and prop up that settler colonial identity. That's why, I mean, if I was a settler colonizer, I get to be the adventurer. I get to be the discoverer. I get to tame the Wild West and the wild Indians in it. I, 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 you know what I mean? I ca I'm casting myself as the hero and the harbinger. And all these other cats are just, you know, they're like animals or subhumans, according to my cultural mythology and my understanding. So that is, the, that is what is propped up and what undergirds the, the physical struggles that we are having for land. Like to this day, like when President Trump came to the Black Hills and just 20 miles from here, you know, we all went there to protest and uh, the road ended up being blockaded. But it was to send a message to the world that President Trump can't just come into our country without letting us know about it, without asking our permission, especially to have a super spreader COVID fireworks show 
with Governor Kristi Noem of South Dakota, who is one of Trump's sycophants. I mean, she just she does whatever, whatever Corey Lewandowski and that CPAC crew tell their, their people to do, she is doing that. And so Standing Rock has changed me forever. Um, my perspective now is that indigenous nations need to further empower themselves and prepare for more of that same, um, you know, animus and, 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 and hatred because that's what Steve Bannon represents. That's what Donald Trump represents. The, these guys are not trying to make friends. They are buying into racist fascism and they're playing on the fears and the confusion of those who identify as white people. And they're saying, look it, there's a horde of Mexican criminals, rapists and gangsters and thugs coming to kill your children and take your jobs. There's a whole hordes of them caravanning over the border, you know, and, and we've got to ban Muslims. A billion people cannot fly into the United States because of what we as the United States are doing to them in their homeland. So we cause a lot of this strife, not, not we as indigenous peoples, but those people who are in control of our foreign and energy policy in this country are able to dictate a lot of how, you know, they, they're able to create the battlefield for us and confine how we fight against that in the pursuit of justice. So Standing Rock has, uh, you know, I was facing six years in prison because of Standing Rock. My wife was also arrested. Um, and, and our kids had to see that. They had to go through that. And so it, it's, it's traumatizing and it scarred us. But we, we cannot stop. We have a critical mass of people who want the kind of change that indigenous people's represent and we were about to achieve that critical mass december 4th i believe 2016 when more than 3000 united states veterans came to the aid of water protectors and and indigenous peoples after they saw the brutalities that were being inflicted in their name you know um, you know in 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 the name of american energy security or job security armed national guards men and women and law enforcement attacking and instigating violence and conflict with unarmed prayerful people. 3,000 veterans came out and said, look it, we're going to stand between those guys in uniform inflicting violence. They're gonna, we're going to be in our uniform and we're going to stand in between you. I think that was, that was too much for President Obama to, to bear at the time. And, and, and the conglomerates that that filled his cabinet and, and that made sure that he was in, in, in agreement and in lockstep with the energy and foreign policy of the war hawks like Steve Bolton. I mean, this is, it's all the same thing uh, or Steve Bolton, I think his name, I don't remember his name, but uh, he, uh, President Obama denied the easement and, 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 and then the camp was dissipated. And so we were prevented from obtaining we could have won over the entire country at, at that time, but you know, it did not happen like that. And, and now Dakota access pipeline is laying in the ground up there, but that, that fight has never ended, but it, it surely has, it has scarred me and, and, uh, and, and it has further committed me to, to carrying on the legacy of, you know, of those ancestors, those grandfathers and grandmothers who sacrificed and the people like LaDonna Brave Bull Ellard, who we just laid to rest just this past Saturday. Um, this, is, this is a long struggle that you also are now born into. Um, but in, as indigenous peoples, we're just, these are our sacred sites that are here in this country. And so we are hardwired in our DNA to protect them and to continue to uphold our, our end of the bargain, so to speak, as human species. Yeah, you made some really, really good points there. And just to kind of finish up, what do individuals and just people around the United States specifically who want to help support Indigenous peoples do to help them and to amplify Indigenous voices as much as possible? Yes, that's a, that's a very good question. Uh, one, of, one of the first things that 
allies can do is just try to educate themselves and you know uh expose yourself do it do a deeper dive into indigenous history um read and support indigenous content creators indigenous youtubers tiktokers influencers people on facebook um you know for me personally look at lakota people's law project at lakota law on twitter and on facebook look at at last real indians on twitter and facebook and and go check out my podcast there uh you know it's going to be old and, and and nerdy but uh it will represent a very um kind of experienced perspective on the things that i've been through and and the some of the challenges that confront indigenous peoples today that is probably the best thing that that people can do is pay attention to independent indigenous media and indigenous struggles there's also um struggles going on right now that are akin to standing rock like at line three check out a woman named tara hauska uh, and another woman named kanahus manuel uh, look up tiny house warriors look up a brother named reuben george i mean these are just some of the names that come to mind of people who are on still on the front line um check out natani means you know uh indigenous hip-hop um there's there's many things that people can do but i would i would start there in just informing yourselves and you know if i could recommend maybe a book uh there's one called lame deer seeker of visions that was written by a European brother named Richard Erdos, but it was with the cooperation of one of our, our spiritual interpreters. You know, sometimes they're called shaman. Sometimes they're called medicine people, um, healers, uh, mystics, intercessors. You know, his name is John Fire Lamedeer. And this book, Seeker of Visions, Lamedeer, Seeker of Visions, is kind of a it's a good it's just a powerful story it's one of my favorites for understanding how indigenous peoples are not living in a post-colonial era let alone you know a post-racial era there is still an active genocide and subjugation that is being executed against indigenous peoples who are older than America, who are older than Canada. And, and the only way we're going to survive is by building bridges with those from our, our groups of allies. And those come in many shapes, colors, sizes, and creeds and worldviews. We're, we're finally, it's like we're all part of one experience now, one religion one worldview and we're all we all have our differences inside of there but we all agree that we need water to live that we need to protect that water and recognize that water as the true not only the water but the ecosystems and the landscapes the, the land itself as the true source of any real economic value there can be no sustainable economies without a respectful relationship with mother earth and so you know we we could not have made the stand that we made at standing rock without our allies who whether they're whether they identify or they're called black white hispanic latin x whatever the term is we all came there and we were able to liberate ourselves for for sh seven short months and to recognize that we have 
challenges that are uniting us in struggle and and that that's that's what i would say as far as uh you know what can people do to kind of support indigenous struggles or or indigenous evolution we we've we've been here before america before canada and we will be here after but there is a chance for us to all unite and 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 we have to otherwise you know oppression begets revolution oppression and poverty and living under the the yoke of colonial intrusions um is not a natural state for anybody so if you were born on the wrong side of racial or working class oppression you you will know very quickly what that feels like if you've ever had to work for minimum wage and you're not guaranteed health benefits you will very quickly know what that feels like if you can't make rent if you need medicare for all it's not an option for you if you go if you get sick you're going into crushing debt you know, if you know if you know what it means to to have fifteen dollar minimum wage be the difference between life and death, if you know that your water is about to be poisoned and your children are going to have to drink cancer water, you will know that we're all in this struggle together. But in order to to become allies and relatives of indigenous peoples, uh, there's got to be a self awareness. And, and a learning journey and, and just being truthful with oneself will go a long way. Because like I said before, we all descend from those indigenous traditions. And in, as indigenous peoples, we know that we descend right from Mother Earth. You know, our divine flesh and blood and our very bones are formed of the same elements and the same materials as mother earth and and this this is reflected in our cosmology in our quote unquote cultural mythology this is what we know as indigenous people so we have to take strength from that and support each other yeah i think that's a really really important message and that we try to spread a lot with eci is using education to really bring us together because as you talked about before with the education system it's Indigenous people and the struggle and the oppression of Indigenous people is not a story from two centuries ago. It's something that is very real and very present today. And that's why I thank you so much for sharing your story from Standing Rock, because it is so important to acknowledge and really take action on the brutality and the oppression of Indigenous peoples today, because it, it is something that is unfortunately not in the past and is so important to address, especially within environmentalism. And we're going to link all the actionable items that you just talked about in our description of the podcast. So everyone who's listening right now, make sure to check it out. And thank you everyone for tuning in today's episode. Don't forget to subscribe and follow us on Instagram at EcoCircleInt. If you find our conversation today insightful, make sure to check out Season 1, Episode 12, featuring Nizreem al Saim, where we speak about the effect of climate change on Sudan, gender qualities, and youth voices. And thank you so much for being with us here today, Chase Ionize. Ah, thank you so much. <laughs>